0: Well, hello friends. Uh, My name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge and welcome to our digital gathering space uh, for teaching and worship together. As you've no doubt heard, we are now in phase three of BC's restart plan, which means that we've returned to in-person gatherings this summer at Jericho, which means live preaching and live children's ministry every weekend and live music on long weekends. So I want to just uh, talk to you for a minute and assure you as part of our online community that we intend to keep on with digital ministry as an integrated part of our core activities and that you will not be abandoned or made to feel like a second-class citizen if you engage with Jericho in this space. You're most welcome to join us in person or move between venues over the summer as you track with us. I want you to know that we love you. We respect comfort levels and travel schedules and all manner of reasons that you might choose to remain in this digital space. Our goal, whether you're in person with us or in this format, is the same as it has always been, that you are growing as a disciple and that you are learning to embody God's love everywhere you go. And we're here to support you on that journey. So with that said, let's jump into our topic for today. We are going to look at the dynamic and complicated interplay between individuals and their actions and systems. So we talk about things, for example, like systemic racism. But what does that actually mean and where does it come from? This topic has come to our collective attention over the past year as a part of the ongoing discussions on institutional racism through things like the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's really come home with the recent discovery of over 1,500 unmarked graves at former residential school sites across multiple provinces. And we've had to grapple with the past and the present impact of the residential school system, not only on indigenous peoples, but also on our society here in Canada as a whole. It can be easy to say, well, I'm not a racist, so why do I have to think about that kind of stuff? But it is important to realize that individual racism is not created in a vacuum, but instead emerges from a society's foundational beliefs and ways of seeing or doing things, and then it is manifested in organizations, institutions, and systems. And so this interaction between persons and systems makes sense when you step back for a moment. So for example, if you're a teacher, you set a tone in your classroom, just like principals and administration set a tone in the school and in the district as a whole. If you're in business, the management or supervisory team sets the pace for the space and then reinforces it through policies and protocols. And really the same is true in churches. Each church or faith community has a unique culture, a unique ethos that's set by those who provide leadership and those who are part of it. And the same is true for Jericho Ridge. Sixteen and a half years ago when we launched Jericho as a satellite of North Langley Community Church, I was the campus pastor. And one of the things that I learned most about church planting is that the church plant takes on both the strengths and the weaknesses of the planter. The strengths of the planter become the strengths of the church. And the weaknesses of the planter, well, those also get transferred to the organization or the system. And it's so common, there's actually a name for this. It's called Founder's syndrome. And, and this became a real challenge for myself and for Jericho around seven years ago. I had to wrestle with the notion that Jericho was becoming more like me as an individual and that that was not always a good thing. And so we as an elders team embarked on a process that helped us move from and keep moving from a founder-led or personality-led church to a team-led or elder-led church. And this has been a challenging but healthy journey for all of us. Well, I bring this up because in our text today, we're gonna see the dynamic interplay between the individual and the system. That's not always pretty, but exploring it can help expose some of our temptations and tendencies in this area, and maybe, God's grace helping us, we can change some of the patterns we live into and out of. So let's dive in, shall we? This summer, we're going through a teaching series in the Old Testament book of Esther entitled Truth to Power. And the story of Esther is a story about how a young immigrant woman moves from obscurity to the position of queen of the land and who at great personal cost to her and her family speaks a very difficult truth to power and saves her people. We've already been introduced to some of the main characters in uh, this book, King Xerxes, who led the powerful Persian Empire in the 5th century BCE, and that empire stretched from India to Ethiopia to Greece, and it was the dominant political, cultural, economic, and military power at that time in history. And then Pastor Wally introduced us to Esther last weekend in Chapter 2 with a strong and wise word on what our value is as persons and where it comes from. And we met Esther's family, Mordecai, uh, who's her uncle and who's some kind of civil servant in the court of King Xerxes. And then at the end of chapter two, we see that Mordecai foils an assassination plot against the king, but he isn't really honored for it. And we're gonna to return to that subplot in the coming weeks. But now here we are in chapter three, and at the start of chapter three, the plot really thickens because we meet our main villain in the story. The man's name is Haman, and he's an egomaniacal leader who's promoted to the very highest position in the land right underneath the king. But there's something else that's going on here as we learn about in his introduction to us in Esther chapter 3. So turn with me in your Bibles or in your devices to Esther chapter 3 verse 1. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. The words are going to come up on your screen. Esther 3 1 begins this way. Some time later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before him and to show him respect whenever he passed by, and so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. So this scene sets in motion a showdown that's gonna carry us through the whole rest of the book. So it's important that we pause and understand what's really going on here. First off, Haman is referred to as an Agagite. Now, Agag was the king of an ancient group or nation known as the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the arch of Israel in the time of Samuel and Saul. In in that era, the Amalekites were constantly harassing and attacking Israel, and they were known for their violence toward Israel. And so this historic skirmish would have left a lasting antagonism between the two groups or nations. So we're being told by the text that though Haman has a Persian name and likely Persian ancestry, really he has already sided with the enemies of God's ancient people Israel. He's a hater who's gonna hate them, the text is saying, which makes his later racist behavior a bit more clear if still inexcusable. The other thing we see here is that Mordecai refused to bow down and pay Haman the homage that Haman demanded of everyone around him. And again, we don't know quite why Mordecai chose not to do this. It doesn't seem connected to any religious conviction or specific Old Testament law. Ancient Jews did not see bowing down to the king, for example, as breaking the first or second commandments to have no other god before the one true God. Mordecai may well have felt that this kind of obedience was due to God alone, but the text doesn't really give us that detail. So whatever the reason, this action on the behalf of Mordecai sets up a kind of showdown between two ancient enemies. Haman represents Agag and the Amalekites. Mordecai represents and stands in the ancient Jewish people. Two races that have nothing but antagonism recorded between them. So let's keep reading because the story moves from personal to national. Verse 3. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, "Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but he still refused to comply with the order." So they spoke to Haman about this, to see if he would <clears throat> Excuse me, to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down to or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So Mordecai's refusal to bow has become quite the topic of conversation at the king's gate, we see. The servants are curious, why would he take this stand on this issue? And eventually, Mordecai tells them that it is on the basis of his identity as an ancient Jew. Well, once this news reaches Haman, who intriguingly didn't seem to know about the non-bowing until someone told him, his ego drives him to a place of rage. And he makes an intriguing leap from the individual personal into the ethnic or collective. In other words, if he's being dishonored by a single Jew, it isn't enough in his mind to deal with that one person, no. In his rage, his hatred now falls on all Jews because of the actions of one. Now here he's making a leap in unsubstantiated non-logic. Just like King Xerxes in chapter 1 did, who has one woman, Queen Vashti, disobey him and immediately he decides to write up an edict and send it to all women. And here we see Haman doing the same thing. Haman is determined to punish all for the sins of one. If one Jewish person is disobeying him, he will kill them all. And before we get the hate on for Haman in our own hearts, let me pause and invite us to do some self-reflection. I know in my own life and heart, it's actually relatively easy to do this kind of mental move. So for example, if I have a bad experience at a chain coffee shop, for example, I can assume that all coffee shops of that brand are equally as insipid as my most recent bad experience. Or if I have a negative run-in with a person of a certain nationality, it can be easy to extrapolate and think that all persons who share their history or identity would act the same toward me. If I met a person of one denomination who's a jerk, then I can unfairly carry that perception into other conversations. And friends, this is one of the ways in which racism takes root. We negatively extrapolate from the individual to the group. We begin to think that what is true of one First Nations person whom we met on the downtown east side must be true of all. Or people think that just because the historic Catholic Church was involved in the residential school system, that justifies burning down Catholic churches today. But this just isn't true or logical. Just like you don't represent all persons in Langley or whatever city you live in, those priests and nuns who ran those schools don't represent all Christians. That's just lazy stereotyping. And stereotypes like, oh she's a Surrey girl, or oh they must be a snob because they live in Walnut Grove, are just not true and not healthy. And of all people, we who follow Christ should have no tolerance for that kind of sloppy thinking because in God's new family, the church, that kind of barrier-driven thinking is to be broken down and done away with. See, the biggest barrier that the early Christian movement had was actually one of ethnic identity. Jews thought they were more special because they had such a long history with God. But I love what Paul, who is one of the most zealous of all Jewish people, says writing to a book, a group of mostly Gentiles or non-Jews in the book of Ephesians. But now, he says, you have been united with Christ once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Friends, Christ breaks down walls of hostility, be they racial, political, economic, ideological. These kinds of divisions have no place in the body of Christ. And I know this is a one-way medium, so I can't hear you, but that would be the time to say amen. But let's get back to our narrative. Haman has racially profiled the ancient Jewish people based on his negative experiences with Mordecai, and now he begins to put in place a sinister plot to eliminate them. Let's pick up this part of the story in Esther chapter three, verses seven to 11. So in the month of April, During the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. And the date selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, "Mm, There's a certain race of people scattered throughout all of the provinces in your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king, so it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited into the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite the enemy of the Jews. The king said the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So here we see the sinister and less than honest nature of Haman's scheme. He tells the king a vague non-truth, certain people refuse to obey your laws. This simply isn't true. And then he also helps the king say yes to this plan by offering to cover the costs, and in fact, more than that, actively enrich the king's treasury. Haman proposed a silver deposit of a ridiculously large volume. This would have been two-thirds of a year's tribute money from the whole of the realm. We're not sure where he was going to get this money from. Either he was so wealthy he had the means to pay for it himself or more likely he felt he was going to be able to take property and money and things of value away from the Jewish people as he slaughtered them and then turned those in to the king. And the king says equally vaguely, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. This could mean that he's saying, well, the money's not really necessary, Haman, or it could mean that he's saying, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want, and giving him basically a blank check. Regardless of this, Haman has the authority to carry out mass genocide in the name of the most powerful ruler in the ancient world. But here's the thing, friends. This is not actually really new news for Persia. See, they actually had a long history of genocide. Take, for example, the story of the massacre of the Magians in 522 BCE. The Greek historian Herodotus records that two brothers named Smyrdas and Panthetes, who were Magians, usurped the throne after the death of the king, King Cambyses. And the brothers attempted to pass off Smyrdes as the murdered brother of Cambyses. However, their ruse was discovered eight months later, and they were assassinated by the Persians, led by King Darius I. But see, the Persians didn't then just stop by only killing those two. They went through the streets of the capital city, killing every single magian they met. And then they went on to memorialize this massacre day as a holy day, and they celebrated it every year. So... Genocidal activity was not particularly new to either the Amalekites nor the Persians. If we pause to see it, there's actually a real racial or ethnic tension in this story. There's a very real showdown with very real world stakes for the ancient people of God as they face oppression and potential annihilation at the hands, not just of an evil man, but an evil law that is rooted in an unjust and evil way of thinking about people of other races. Haman has consulted ancient sorcerers and astrologers who would almost always consult with the god small g, before they acted. In this case, it was the throwing of a stone die that helped to set a date for this genocide around 11 months in the future. And then Haman calls the scribes together. They write up the decree exactly as Haman dictates it in chapter three, verse 12. And then it gets sealed up with the king's signet ring, which was a symbol of the king's authority. And then the message gets sent out to all of the realms in the kingdom. Even think about how big it was. Even the swiftest messengers need time to travel. And so this would have taken three to four months to disseminate this order that, quote, all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day, March 7th of the following year, 473 BC, and the property of all of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. But even here, friends, God, while unnamed in the book of Esther, is actually at work because those lots could have fallen much closer to the time. But now 11 months actually allows Esther and Mordecai time to hatch a plot of their own to save their people. Proverbs 16.33 says it this way, The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. But I'm getting ahead of myself in the story, so let's just sit with the weight of chapter three without needing to rush into the future. We see at the end of this chapter, in the last verse, that while the king and Haman are sitting down to drink, the capital city of Susa fell into confusion. There's this sense of dissonance here. People outside of the palace walls are receiving news of their upcoming death while those in power and authority are enjoying a lavish feast. And and the city's caught and bewildered, asking questions like, who who are these Jewish people who are so horrible that they need to be destroyed? I, I don't know if I know anyone like that. But if I did, on the other hand, I could kill them and take their land and that might be a way to advantage myself. And so evil begins to take root. And what I want us to think about today is actually the nature of evil. We often like to think of evil as personal because we live in an individualistic society and it most certainly is. Sin and personal human sinfulness are very clearly taught in the scriptures. And what is also taught is that, as our Confession of Faith puts it, quote, sin opens up individuals and groups to the bondage of demonic principalities and powers. And those powers work through political, economic, social, and even religious systems to turn people away from holiness, justice, and righteousness. So yes, sin is personal. But we also need to think about sin in terms of being a power that enslaves. It's in my heart, it's in your heart, because of our actions and our humanness. And it is also in systems and institutions and organizations. And this is part of what the Bible means when it talks about principalities and powers of this world in Colossians 2 and Ephesians 6. Yes, Haman was, in Esther 3, a racist individual, and he also put in place a policy and a law that was evil and racist. It moved from the individual to the systemic. And the commentary on Article 4 in our Confession of Faith says it well. Quote, groups, nations, and structures are susceptible to demonic forces such as racism. Structures such as governments, military forces, economic systems, or religious institutions, family systems, and structures determined by class, race, gender, or nationality can incite people to do evil that they would not have otherwise chosen on their own. Such systems exercise a collective Enduring power far more destructive than the sum of the individuals who support or comply with them, end quote. And this is what I think we see happening in this chapter. There is a system that is animated with a desire for power and control, and that has a history of killing to maintain, to preserve, and expand it. It's a kind of system or theology of Empire. And that now comes to clash with the people and purposes of God in redemptive history. And this conflict goes far beyond Haman and Mordecai not getting along. It goes even beyond racial genocide. This is now a plot that is animated and moved along by the evil one to wipe out the plan that God has to bring redemption to the world through Jesus, who was born into a Jewish family. See, if the evil one can wipe out the line of David, the promises of God to bring deliverance and healing may not just come to pass. That's really what is at stake here. So, why should you and I bother with this kind of thinking? Why do we need to explore this? Well, sometimes I think we make two mistakes about the nature of evil. Sometimes we think about it as only personal, and yes, it is certainly individual, and individuals can and do choose wrong and need to be called to repentance. There is, of course, a personal dimension to sin. And we are called to be those who receive and live into the news of God's liberating power as individuals, as we say yes to Jesus in repentance and faith. And friend, if you've never done that, then I wanna encourage you that today is your day. If you're watching on our church online platform, just click on the request prayer button now and that will put you into a private and confidential chat with one of our staff. If you're watching on, online on YouTube or on TELUS TV, just email us at prayer at JerichoRidge.com and we would love to be in touch and help you take that step. But I want us to remember that there is also a spiritual and social dimension to sin because sin is a power that enslaves we need to have a robust theology of principalities and powers that understands things like addiction, victimization, multi generational trauma, multinational corporate structures are powers which can and do enslave people. And yet, even here, friends, the good news of the gospel comes in the form of liberation. And we are called as a church to collectively bear witness and to take liberation from sin beyond just the realm of private religious experience. That's one of the powerful things about taking communion together, which I invite you to get prepared for now. If you'd like, you can pause the live stream, come back to it in a few moments once you have some bread and some juice to partake together with. See, Jesus came. To break not just the bonds of personal sin, but also the bonds of behavior patterns, ideologies, and institutions that exalt themselves against God and the knowledge of God. Things like racism need to be repented of and rejected, not just personally, but also publicly and Collectively, And this is done repeatedly in the Old and New Testaments where leaders and people gather and collectively take responsibility for what is or has transpired.